You're listening to a Hindustan Times podcast brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, this is Manjula Narayan and this is the Books and Authors podcast and today we have with us uh, Arunava Sinha who's uh, edited the greatest Indian stories ever told 50 masterpieces from the 19th century to the present. So hi Arunava. Hi. Good to talk to you. <laughs> yeah. So uh you know I mean I read the introduction and you've mentioned you know the first few questions itself other questions that i'd i'd have had like to ask but you know so maybe since the readers don't know yet about the introduction i mean they haven't read the book so what makes the 50 stories in this volume the greatest indian stories ever told what criteria have been applied to make this selection so let's start with that what makes the 50 stories in this volume the greatest indian stories ever told okay so first of all when you say something like the greatest indian stories ever told maybe we are playing with words a little bit but these are not necessarily the 50 greatest indian stories ever told yes these are 50 of the greatest indian stories ever told right for the very simple reason that obviously you can't arbitrarily cut that number off at 50 yes whatever standards you apply you can't say that there are only 50 and there are no more or for that matter why even 50 why not 45 why not 25 why not 30 etc so these are 50 of the greatest indian stories ever told is how i looked at it mm-hmm. and importantly and um, my criteria for what makes so the great idea of greatest is also that they are not just stand alone greatest stories but they are greatest stories appearing in a single volume that's important because the moment you start you use the phrase indian stories then yeah. there are certain elements that you have to keep in mind so you, we can't just say that these are the 50 best stories i have read that i think uh, i am i know of that have been written in the on the sub, on, on in the country of india okay mm-hmm. because um, then for all you know uh, they could all come from one part or only one or two places and so on right you could have yes. that kind of a bias so yes. the moment you bring the idea of india there you have to bring in everything that we think of um when we think of india in a cultural and a literary context so it's about diversity it is about um ensuring that different kinds of voices from not just different geographies but also different histories different classes different segments that we get a mixture of voices from all of these you know whichever way you slice and dice the the cultural map of the country we get a mixture of all of these because it is in that combination that you ultimately end up with the idea of the greatest so that diversity is is a very crucial element of excellence yes yes okay so so tell me i mean you know all these you've got all these stories from across the country so how did you go about selecting them you you know um some of them have like uh, like you've mentioned in in the preface they've appeared in other uh, alf collections like the goan stories i mean i read them in um, and i think manohar shetty's uh, uh, you know selection of uh, was manohar shetty's an alf any anyway, the selection of goan stories so you know how did you uh, how did you choose these particular ones and what what went into it you know because yeah. it seems like a mammoth task Yeah so actually all of these stories except the ones that were originally written in English are from the various anthologies 
that Aleph has published. So Aleph has this series called The Greatest Bengali, Hindi, Tamil, Telugu, Malayalam, Kannada, etc. Stories ever told. Mm -hmm. So each of which contains somewhere between 20, 21, 25 and odd stories in each volume. So that was the, the pool from which I picked eventually. Okay. And the reason I chose that pool was that I was then working on the shoulders, sort of standing on the shoulders of people who had already done the work for each of the languages. Yes, yes. So, so there was, you know, and these are people who understand the literatures of those languages well. It did not make sense to come up, come, you know, appear on the scene with some kind of uh, pride and say that I know everything there is to know about the literatures of all the languages of India. It's impossible, it's impractical, and it is doing a disservice to the whole thing. So we decided that we were going to use these volumes and then pick from them. Of course, that still meant an enormous amount of reading because you're still talking about something like reading um, close to 300 odd stories. Yes, yes. Um, no, two more actually. Uh, yeah, well, thereabouts, roughly about 300 odd stories and then pick out 50 of them. So at one level, it's not so difficult because you're talking about one out of six, mm -hmm. which is not so bad if you come to think of it. But it is it was an exceedingly difficult task because since each of these volumes had been cherry-picked, the contents mm -hmm. had been cherry-picked, therefore there were no, no stories that you could ignore or straight away say, no, no need to in include this one, right? So everything was, it was like an enormous shortlist. And you're trying to pick 50 winners. It's something like that. And um, frankly, quite frankly, you could pick another set of 50 from the same pool without anything in common with these. And they would be fantastic stories as well. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's, there's nothing to say that these stories are better than the others. So after the initial plan of ensuring diversity of voice, of geography, of history, and so on, gender, uh, once that was sort of in place, then the rest of it was really personal taste. And uh, personal taste has this advantage where you, no one can argue with you on it. <laughs> if you feel that one story, you really like one story, no one can come and say, no, how can you like this story? At most, they can say, how can you not like that story? That's fair. But uh, at no point am I saying I didn't love those other stories. In fact, I would ideally love to do volume two and volume three and volume four if possible. But of course, that would just mean cut slicing and dicing the same stories in different ways. So yeah. my dear hope actually is that those who have not read those language-specific greatest stories books end up reading them after dipping into this one. Something like just a handful of stories from each language, you know, three, four, uh, no more than that. Over there, they'll get a really sizable selection. So I'm hoping that this becomes an entry point into okay. each of those. Mm -hmm. The only exception to the stories originally written in English, because those did not appear in any of the Aleph volumes. It was some, it was like personal memory, what you've read, what you remembered, and a little bit of suggestions. But of course, English stories were very difficult, are very difficult in their own right, because there are so many of them. And yes. you don't even, you can't say that now I'm going to sit down and read a hundred stories. It, it's it's largely, it was largely a case of what you remember, what people suggest, you know, what has really stayed with you from the reading that you've done. Mm. So mm. I, I absolutely have to say that this is a very, very, eventually, this is a very, very personal choice. Yes. So, you know, I was thinking when I was reading the stories, I mean, I haven't read all of them, but I've read many. And I was thinking that the one thing that struck me was that most of them, like, except for maybe, you know, Tharoor's, uh, Shashi Tharoor, the elder Tharoor story mm. is very, like, positive. But, uh, yeah. I mean, it's cheerful towards the end, but, uh, yeah. you know. 
but most of the others are like high tragedy you know so uh, you know pain and so i was wondering yes. about that uh, you know well i think that's that's been a gestalt that's been the gestalt of this country in the 20th century mostly and a little bit in the 21st because when when you're writing i think our, our writers have never divorced themselves from social reality right mm-hmm. they've not really gone as much into individual lives uh, without mm-hmm. taking into account the social space in which those lives are lived and inevitably if you do that then what stories are you going to write that do not take into account all the things that are genuine cause for despair and dismay yes. you're always hoping for the better but mm-hmm. you know as a step towards there you will have to depict reality the way you see it and you will have noticed that almost all of these stories are written in in almost all if not all are written in a fairly down to earth realistic mode in in some cases there are some forms used that don't exactly conform to realism but the attempt is still to depict largely a real world and not yes. a world of the of in of the intellectual imagination or of fantasy or of magic realism or so on right yes. Uh, yes. reality is, is 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 too i mean there's too much reality <laughs> to <laughs> get get away from uh, and you know eliot said the human beings cannot stand very much reality but i think our writers in 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 our country have taken reality head on mm. and grappled with it and presented it and never flinched never looked yeah. away yeah yeah because i i i was reading and i was thinking god do we not have a a, a bone of like comedy or anything in our bodies and because you know like the like you said the default thing is you know seriousness so i i was one i was really wondering about that while i was reading the book you know because i hadn't thought about this you know i i really hadn't thought about this this aspect of uh, of our media collective uh, you know what do you call it yeah yeah no i know in fact the this is probably almost the first time that you are actually getting to the read the literatures from the entire country as it were in a single volume yes. and all juxtaposed to one another and and they really hammer away at you because you know one <laughs> yeah. story after another as you say is yet another depiction of something that is not funny not lighthearted uh, not even uh, often brutal and certainly yes. not certainly not predicting um, a rosy kind of ending uh, or future so yeah. there are other stories but somehow you can't escape these stories you know these are the ones that stay with you these are the ones that that continue to tell you the things that matter and perhaps um, a literary culture that has comedy that lasts as opposed to here and now comedy or light hearted writing Mm. of funny writing perhaps that needs to be a, a much more of an of um, i don't know i mean uh, i don't think we are there i don't think we have that kind of a of a world that we occupy that enables us to write in a light vein while being genuinely funny even yes. a light vein turned into satire yes 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 so you know this this book of stories actually brings that <laughs> highlights that 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 seems to be one thing that we share as um, as indians you know across a subcontinent i mean that's what struck me while i was reading it
Absolutely. And uh, despite the local variations mm. in, in sensibilities and in local histories and in local concerns, and even in the behavior of people which are depicted in the stories, you're absolutely right. That arc that we see that runs through all the stories is, it's it's perhaps it's sad in a way that that is what distinguishes us, as it were, <laughs> that becomes the common feature, the glue that, you know, or, or, or the backbone around which each of the stories is a sort of a rib. But, mm. uh, but there's no get, I mean, I as I keep saying, there's no getting away from it. Mm. And it's actually when you when you look at life, you know, very here and now, you see a lot of light things, funny things and so on. But when you look back, mm. what stays with you? Inevitably, other than personal joys and happinesses, but the moment you go a little further, what stays with you are all the things that are depicted in these stories. Mm. To, be, to be honest, you know, if you look at any collection of stories from anywhere in the world, I think you will find more of this kind of writing than any other kind. I mean, the, the treatment might be different. So let's say a book of Japanese short stories will perhaps not be as, um, it, it won't be as in your face when it comes to uh, some of the things that are very, very starkly de depicted here. But all of them are informed by melancholy and a tragic sense of loss. And yeah. uh, so, you know, so I think it's it's very much a feature of literature around the world. I mean, think of think of the greatest books from anywhere in the world. And you'll inevitably think of an abyss of some kind that you're staring <laughs> into. That's true. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So, you know, uh, when I was reading your introduction, this thing also struck me. Let's talk about this. India is a country that lives in translation. Uh, as we constantly navigate a path between the language we are born with, the language we live in and the language we go on to express ourselves in, which are often different from one another. This is so true. And, you know, so if you can, and since you're a translator. Yeah, and that's, that's that's a sort of unique reality of India, I think, compared mm -hmm. to any other country in the world. Because there's yes. no one country that has so many uh, full-fledged flourishing languages and their accompanying literatures, right? You can only think of Europe as a similar uh, space, but Europe is, is many countries. Yes. So, so, and because we intermingle, we are not ghettoized into our respective states and, and languages, we mm -hmm. end up as we said, you know, you grow up with what is called your mother tongue. Then yeah. pretty soon you start, uh, you start studying and your education and then your work life and so on. Very often, thanks to migration or very often thanks to the fact that the language of work is different, maybe different from your local language, leads you into a second language, right? Yes. And then, and then when you are talking, exp writing. Um, making films, making music, and so on. Then you are going into yet another language, which may be a variation of one of these two, but it may also be something that you want to be, where you can be read and heard and understood by a large number of people. So, for example, today in India, um, you know, your your mother tongue is your mother tongue. Now, for many people, that's Hindi, but for yes. a very large number of people, it's not. Yes. Um, for many people in the country, again, whose mother tongue is not Hindi, they still have they still understand much of Hindi, right? Irrespective of the attempt to uh, ram it down people's throats by force, the fact is that Hindi has emerged as a sort of a, a language that is understood to some extent, to, ranging from some extent to a great extent everywhere. So you're already living in that second language. And likewise for English, which is, which is the most practical language of existence in India. So now you, uh, at least for the for people who read and write and so on, right? So... Yes. You're already talking about living 
in three languages. But at no point are you living in islands of these three languages. You're living in spaces between them, overlapping. You're continuously code switching. You're using not just in, you're not just limiting yourself to one language at a time. You're actually creating a, com, a sort of um, uh, combined language which borrows from each of the languages that you know. You borrow terms, you borrow phrases, alternate sentences maybe in various languages, and you do all of this very unselfconsciously. Yes, yes. It's not even as though you're thinking now I will speak in English or now I will speak in Kannada or something. Before you know it, you've just switched into whichever version works best for you, depending on you and your audience. So we continuously live in this space. And therefore, if we are, however, also going to read one another's literatures and not limit ourselves only to the language that we can read in or write in, then translation has to become has to be a more formal mode. We already translate our lives into various languages, but it has to be a formal mode in which the literatures also get transferred between various languages so that you can read something in the language of your choice yes. rather than being cut off from it because you don't know that language. Right. In India, that language has turned out to be English. Yes. There used to be a very robust culture of translating between the non-English Indian languages, but mm -hmm. that has kind of because now it's very hard to find people who can work biliterate, leave English yes. out, work biliterate between non-English Indian languages. Yes. And um, English has become a natural, natural kind of space, therefore, for translated literature right now. But I also feel that, you know, this volume could actually go into each of the languages from which it takes stories. So, so this volume can go into Tamil and Telugu and Kannada and Malayalam and everything else, right? So ah. that people should actually... You know what I mean? So people should ideally yes. have the choice to read these stories in the language of their choice. It does, they do not have to be or should not have to be limited to reading them in English alone. But that's a huge undertaking. I mean, who's like, you know, then you have to get in each of these languages, though it's a great idea. But do you think any publisher would like, you know, launch well, it? I no longer know what I no longer know what publishers or most publishers really want to do. <laughs> I, they, 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 they somehow, um, you know, the utilitarian value of books has become so much bigger than the than any other value that literature has. That big publishers, particularly who have large investments to protect, are uh, training more and more of their efforts towards those books. It's only and actually only a publisher like Aleph could have brought this book out, you know, because they are not protecting. A, a revenue requirement of 300 crores a year and they're not protecting a requirement to to make profits of 50 or 60 crores a year and so on so they can actually uh, train their resources on what they consider good books for a big publisher like a Harper Collins or a penguin random house to take two examples they necessarily have to train their uh, efforts and energies on books that will sell into the 25 and 30 thousands rather than the books that will sell in the twos and three thousands right so automatically their, their efforts are directed over there. So to answer your question, who will publish this in each language? Maybe there will be a publisher in each language who will do it. Mm -hmm. so, you know, someone who published in Malayalam or Tamil or Telugu will say, fine, I would love to publish this book for my Tamil readers or my uh, Marathi readers or my Urdu readers. Mm. Project worth pursuing, certainly. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm thinking, you know, okay, we um, all of the stories here kind of emerge from, you know, one of the, the mainstream languages. But what about, you know, the smaller languages or the, the ones with fewer speakers, and the, which are, you know, not that yeah, well? No, there's entire, I mean, those stories desperately need those stories and novels really need to be translated and brought out into other languages as well. 
and uh, we will hope i i'm hopeful that we will get there mm-hmm. um, there are some efforts underway uh, efforts that are driven not by commercial considerations mm-hmm. so it can only be that kind of effort but we will get there i'm pretty sure. i i think we will get there we will see in the next 5 years a lot of uh, translated literatures coming out of you know the tulus and the yes. uh, language yeah yeah and and so on and tulus one example there are many others so yeah Santali. there are many others yeah 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 and and you know i was thinking while i was reading this book uh, this book i mean i was thinking of that and i was thinking that i mean i wonder uh, about those world views and you know uh, would they actually be like would they be as you know would they have a similar sort of <laughs> similar sort of you know feeling coming through them or you know i mean if, if it's so different from language to language yet from this collection one can see that there are so many commonalities as well right yes yes you see the commonalities you also see the the local variations yes. but you're right of course because when you're talking about the literatures coming written in languages that are used by far fewer people obviously the concerns there will be different the geopolitics yeah. of the spaces are are very very often unique so yes i i am pretty sure that they will turn out to be different but they will also turn out to be similar in many of the larger concerns because those things spread across the country irrespective of region and do you think like you know the the emerging sub nationalisms also help in this you know somehow contribute to our interest in stories emerging from these languages you know i i think it's a great way to understand these sub nationalisms as you call them we have become in you know, globalization has uh, also taken root in india in a in a sort of pan indianism right and mm, in trying yes. to um actually flatten the differences flatten registers and bring everybody to a common space and a common understanding and so on but yes. the thing is that when you do that at the expense of the individualities of individual cultures then we are doing great disservice and eventually we're killing the whole thing because you will never get anything authentic out of a manufactured commonality yes the authenticity can only come from an organic uniqueness right so if today we are interested if say you and i are both in delhi right now and if today we are interested in what drives um the people of tamil nadu for example or what drives the people of um of the konkan region or what drives the people of gujarat or what drives the people of assam then perhaps the best way of understanding that is to read their literatures yes. and the reason i say literatures is that literature survives you know most other art forms um with the exception of some films tend to age yes. but literature truly survives so you get not only a sense of what of current realities but you also get a historical sweep it helps you understand so i dare say that if someone said i want to understand what's assam i would tell them read 25 short stories from assam yeah you you'll get a better sense of assam than in any other way that you could in the space of two weeks or a month Yeah, talk about Assam. That that Saikya story kind of really struck me. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that was. But tell me, uh, you know, I mean, you were talking earlier about, uh, uh, you know, only Aleph could have brought this book out, and you know, um, but I was thinking that this sort of book and and all the short stories, you know, from particular states and languages, all of them must be great, very good, must be bestsellers. I mean, you know, because this is the sort of isn't this the sort of thing that people really want, you know. But the Aleph collection that proved that this is the sort of thing people want, and yet we have this great 
uh, we have had this great resistance to publishing short stories and anthologies, which actually provide so much more diversity than a single novel. Uh, yes. there, is, there, there was one theory that you a, a collection of short stories needs the reader to make a fresh investment in each story, whereas a novel is a one-time single investment, then they go along with that. I mean, I don't know. Uh, none of this. Uh, the argument is always not that short stories are not good or that they're not, uh, that novels are superior, but that short stories don't sell. Mm. I, th- I think these collections have proved that theory completely wrong, eminently wrong. In fact, now you are seeing other publishers uh, taking similar routes into producing region-specific anthologies of short fiction in translate. So mm. that, that the people have sort of woken up to the fact that it is a distinct possibility. In fact, you can interest many more readers with this form, readers who might otherwise actually not go into novels, who might mm. say, all right, but at least let me read the short stories. I'll get a sense of a literature without necessarily having to spend the entire year reading. Yeah, that's also true. I mean, short stories do give you an insight into uh, in, yeah. into specific cultures, right? And the best writers were writing short fiction as well. So you're not mm. also losing out on the writers. You know, it's not as though it's a separate set. The ones who wrote the great novels are also the ones who wrote the great short stories. Yes, yes. Yes. So you, we've got like in this collection, there's so many eminent writers. I mean, you know, uh, so what? I mean, did you, did you, did, did that kind of affect you? Like, did you decide? I mean, you know, it sounds a bit shallow to be asking this, but did the, the did the names of the authors, you know, the big names, did that have, you know, did that? Well, let's say that while that was not the only consideration, it was certainly an important consideration. Because if you already have a set of writers who have been acknowledged as great writers, then it would also be kind of um, doing a disservice to those literatures to say, no, that doesn't matter. Uh, right. So, mm. so you do take that into account without making it the only basis for selection. Mm. Mm. So which one is your favorite, if I may ask? Oh, dear. You know, it depends <laughs> which day I'm reading. It depends when I'm reading it. Honestly. I mean, I'm looking at the contents page as I talk to you, and I really don't know which one I could tell you is is my favorite. Okay. No, this is not a not a the genuine inability to identify a favorite. It's not some kind of diplomatic answer. Actually, my favorite is actually the one that you've translated, the Mahashweta Devi, uh, Urvashi and Johnny. I mean, I like that Urvashi. story a lot. You know. Yeah, that's a very unusual. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but also the other thing was that it also, you know, once you had chosen an author, I also started looking at whether the story is kind of not representative exactly, because then that would narrow down an author or essentialize them too much. But can it be, Would you know, it should be considered one of their best. That's also equally important, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so you, were, uh, you were saying, what about, you know, I mean, some... I find, I don't know whether it's because of my personal uh, uh, thing for animals, but whenever there's like a, when when humans die, I don't seem to like mind so much as when Mm. animals die, you know, when the buffalo dies or the dog dies, I'm like upset. So is this a common reaction or what? Mm. A common reaction among whom? Yeah, that's also true. I mean, it depends on how you feel for for beasts. Our our relationship with animals, I think, especially a little earlier in our histories, has, is a very complete one. Hmm. Hmm. It's not just a utilitarian or value exchange kind of relationship, right? Nor is yes. it a nor is it a human pet kind of relationship. 
Yes. It, it was almost anthropomorphized in some ways. Um, so I think the writers were very skillful in being able to evoke those reactions in you when the animals die. Mm-hmm. And and, and they, they were being very real. I think they, 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 these are experiences that have come from their imaginations, of course. But a lot of these stories, I think, have come from the lived experiences of the authors. Not in terms of the stories themselves or the actual incidents, but in terms of the themes, the concerns, the milieus, and most certainly the conversations. I, you know, and also like when I read the Vijaydan Deitha uh, story, mm. you know, I was thinking about... Um, that was also completely unexpected what happened eventually you know and and, and the casualness yeah. of it and i was thinking my goodness this it's actually a very honest portrayal of what people are mm. like right mm. so mm. that sort of shock uh, that emerges like many of the stories have that and some of them don't like i mean i wasn't like the kushwan singh story i i wasn't particularly shocked or anything but many of the stories have that like at the end of it the mashweta uh, devi story like you, you're like you. You get this, and even even the uh, the Goan story about the uh, mm. cattle. You know, I mean, I read that earlier, and and this time as well, I thought, oh my god, you know, it's so sad. Like at the end, it's completely unexpected the reaction of the woman to the return of the cattle. So those sort of things, like you know, so is that a good short story? Always seems to have make the reader kind of like go through. A whole trajectory, right? So, what do you think? In a very tight uh, time span, because yes. you're usually reading a story in, in a single setting. Yes. Right. And so, yes. yet your your mind and heart, your moan, as we call it in Bangla, that continuum between mind and heart, yeah. actually goes through so many phases. So many, or rather, the writer manipulates it into going so many different directions and bringing it round to where the writer wants it wants to bring it round eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's a very intense and often uh, kind of uh, i would say exhausting experience yeah to to read read uh, stories like this because all of them are very high on they're very dense stories not in terms of their um, uh, comprehensibility but certainly very dense on feelings and ideas and emotions none of them sort of skates lightly over the surface of anything that, that, that's that's true and in fact the other point you made about the animals and so on so it's when you get a collection like this that you suddenly start seeing themes that you didn't know of mm. right it's when you when they come together that these commonalities you mentioned suddenly jump up and you see wow i i never realized there were so many stories on on this theme yeah that's true and and even something like you know uh, uh, the amrita pritam story as well you know and the the, the story of a crow learning prosody that that was yes. only only story oh, yes. that was <laughs> sort of light hearted in a certain yeah. sense you know in a, yeah 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 <laughs> a sardonic kind of thing yeah yeah I, I, you know i didn't at the end of it put it put the book down and think oh my goodness which a lot of stories did i did do you know yeah yeah so then when you were actually picking them out how long did it take you and did you what were the feelings you went through and you know what attracted what what made you decide that okay this particular well, I, I i read i read for over a period of about 6 months okay from the time the idea came up to the time i uh, sort of worked on the finished the final list and mm-hmm. i tried to read not too many stories at a time because mm-hmm. uh, of the fact that you know you you still want to give this give yourself a little life for the story to settle in you and play over you and and ruminate on what you think about it the next morning 
and so on, right? So it involved reading and then uh, in a day or two, um, take making some notes on each story. Um, not exactly immediately because sometimes your immediate reaction is not the best way to think of a story. Uh, and it was, um, well, you know, it. it I, I mean, I've served on juries before. This was like serving on a jury. And it can be... Uh, <laughs> It you you also almost sort of you're also living your life at the same time and doing the stuff that that um, earns you a living and doing yeah. everything else, doing your chores, uh, meeting yeah. people, talking to them. But mm -hmm. yet you are in a bit of a trance because you're really essentially most of your mind is occupied by this world that you are navigating. Mm -hmm. So it it is it is a very unusual, rare, and I would say an experience. It's it's like going for you know I, I've never been myself, but I've heard uh, people talk about going for vipassana where they uh, cut themselves off from the world and they don't talk and wow. they're only focused on, I don't know what is it exactly they're focused on uh, you know it, it sounds very unreal to me cutting yourself from the world off yes. from the world and one thing but uh, in a way this is a kind of surrogate for that kind of an experience where you are parallelly living in the world that you that you physically occupy and then this other world of all these stories and this these um, waves of fiction that are coming at you. And there's a new wave or two new waves every day, literally. And yeah. you are trying to uh, you are trying to serve them and hold them. And you're forever. I was forever worried that what if I forget one of the great stories? You know, I really thought it was great, but now I somehow it slipped my mind. So you take notes, and afterwards, you know, when it's very intense, four months later, you look at your notes and suddenly say, what, what is this note? I don't understand it. What have I said here to myself? <laughs> you know, what was I trying to say? There was some thought I had then, I didn't articulate it clearly, and now it's gone. So then you go back and read that story, right? And then mm -hmm. it's, ah, that's what it was. Or you say, no, that's not what it was. It's something else. And mm -hmm. so on. So there was revisiting and so on. But it was a, it was, I mean, I, I considered it an incredible opportunity because who's going to get a chance to sit down and read so many writers in That's, such a short of time? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, then some of these writers, I mean, you know, you've read them maybe in school or you read them earlier in your yeah. life. And then, you know, you meet them again in this collection and you think, oh my goodness, I have to now read him or her again I have to all over again yeah, exactly. revisit, revisit this person's work like this ov vijayan exactly. story this ov vijayan story really shook me <laughs> yes. you know and i have to go back and read him again so was that did that kind of like strike you when you were doing oh the yes oh yes absolutely and i realized that many of them i had read in when my relationship with literature was very different so, so reading, then I made notes that I have to go back and read these people, and then you're always worried about rereading someone because there is also so many unread authors to read. Yeah, and it's torture. It's really torture when so you know that even you know, time That's... is not endless, life is not yeah. endless. Yes, yes. So you know, while I was reading this, also, I one thing I noticed was that um, the I was wondering whether. It's the translators who are kind of, uh, you know, in some of the languages, there's a sort of brevity and there's a holding back. Whereas the English writing is sort of, I don't know, I couldn't figure out whether it was my reading of it or is it actually like that. It seemed more, um, I don't know, to be more verbose somehow than the uh, translations. Well, it could be that, you know, perhaps the people who are writing here in English were all very um, adept and accomplished or are, are or were adept and accomplished practitioners in, in their language. 
and they they come from a certain background you know it in english writing automatically for the most part tends to place you in a particular socio economic slot right yes. of course yes. that has changed of late so mm-hmm. more, more contemporary writing in english comes from all kinds of bad backgrounds but because mm-hmm. here we are looking at something that has stood the test of time to some extent at least we are looking at people who were writing in english mostly in the second half of the 20th century or first half or second half and there's this one writer i think who wrote in the 21st so mm, i think they necessarily their relationship with the english language was different whereas um, the i mean there there's the, i don't think it's the lived language for many of these writers so they write they perform in it they write in it yeah oh. whereas uh, whereas for the writers who wrote in the other languages they they were writing in their lived languages so they very often much much more terse much sharper sometimes raw much yes. more, much closer to the actual sounds that you hear on the streets and people speaking and so on right so yeah. in the hands of a good translator therefore that the english in which the translation will emerge will necessarily be different from the one in which someone writing in english will write Mm-hmm. I think that is what you are what you are seeing here. Yes, yes, yes. Because you know, like something like rats by Babindranath Sakya. I mean, that's the that's the one story that I you know almost it actually made me cry. And I yeah. haven't read him before this, so I I was a bit I was really taken by that story. And and what I found in it was that there's a brevity and there's a holding back that's very powerful. you know yes absolutely also uh, the languages of india and the non english languages also work a lot more through suggestion through shorter sentences they don't spell out everything yes. the the writer not intent on displaying their command over the language they using the language as a very natural organic uh, mode of transmission mm-hmm. there is there, it's not, not not so driven by craft Okay. You no know, so and none of these writers has has been to i mean obviously that's a stupid statement to make if i say they've not been to mfa courses that's but you know i mean that's silly but you know the point i'm making which is that they they didn't separate the writing from the the act, you know uh, or the language or the surface of the text from the content of the material it was a fused whole uh whereas you know many writers in english tend to think of how will i put this how will i write this there there's lot more of um you know formal in invocation of elements of craft and techniques yes yes whereas those other writers are organic writers and and very powerful writers mm-hmm. so but they write very organically and and therefore we see that kind of brevity that you allude to um a lot they make a lot more demands of their readers i think yes yes you have to imagine the scene you know yes. there's a lot of that and 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 there's nothing more horrible in your own imagination i guess the reader's imagination because you can yeah, think exactly. yeah and that's the whole point of uh, the written word right yeah. that the reader becomes an equal participant in the creation of the story yes yes you know but your point about the mfa thing <laughs> you know I, let's come to this i mean it's not directly connected to this volume of stories but do you feel that you know this constant um, of course an mfa is great and all that in writing but um, I mean, it was unheard of earlier, and those works are still so powerful. I mean, they still move you, you know. So, what, what? I mean, where, where does it take us, you know? And isn't there a sameness that you know, as a translator, since you've translated so much, it, it, this must be something that that strikes you often. The the sameness of uh, you know of of a whole bunch of people going into a writing class. 
you know, and emerging from from that training. Is there isn't there a loss in some way? Well, I think I would say it's not a loss because those who have an original voice retain it. What you do get is a lot of books by others who do not have original voices. So in a sense, your volume goes up, but not everything that gets added has the unique stamp of a writer, a unique voice, a unique sensibility. So that is where, you know, it starts resembling each other, one another. And that that you could say that that's a loss if you were to just take that sample of writing. But on the whole, an MFA also does other things, like it gives you the time to write. It gives you community with a bunch of other writers. It gives yes. you the time to study writing, which is always very helpful. And every practitioner, great practitioner of any art will say that most of their learning has come from actually close reading or close observing or close watching or close listening, as the case yes. might be, depending on the art form. So it does allow you to do all of that and perhaps identify formally some of the techniques that uh, maybe writers use almost um, unknowingly. Organic mm-hmm. writers will use things without realizing that they're formal techniques. So it's interesting to be able to identify these things. But eventually, if you apply them mechanically in order to make your writing richer because it has 47 different techniques, then obviously it's not going to hang together as an organic whole, right? It has to inform your writing rather than be a feature of it. Yes, yes. Okay. So, so yeah, I mean, there is, of course, I mean, there, people refer to the so-called MFA school of writing. Perhaps they're not entirely wrong. In some ways, you know, many people also substitute form for content as it when I'm, I'm, I'm making a crude binary out of the two because they're not really separated in that sense. Yes. But you know, you may not have a great story to tell, but you may you may say that my writing will see me through even if the story is not that great. Or some people abandon the story altogether. Yes. So, so it also, re- re- I think, realizes new possibilities which can be very interesting. Mm-hmm. Increasingly now, we're seeing a kind of third space which is a fusion. I mean, earlier you had the very sharp division of what is fiction and what is not. But now you're seeing interesting new third space where you can't tell what is fiction and what is supposedly fact. And, uh, you know, they borrow from one another to create some, I think, very fascinating new forms. I think this is the kind of thing that perhaps has come out of the experimentation with technique and, uh, and the attempt to engage with various ways of writing in a formal structured manner rather than organically. So I think those are those are good. Those are those are things that we've gained, if anything. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Now, as a translator, and you know, all these translations that you've, these stories which have been translated now, you know, when you when you look at somebody else's translation, what strikes you? You know, when you look at the translations that you chose, what was it about them that made you choose them? You know? Well, um, I think the main thing was that if you read the translated story and you saw how good the story was and nothing was coming between you and the quality of the story, then you knew it was a great translation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you read a great story in a less than great translation and you feel, I know this is a wonderful story, but somehow the translation has marred the experience of reading. But when you don't get that feeling, even for a moment when you are, you know, that willing suspension of disbelief that I am reading the story in its pristine form. And I don't mean that this is a story that does not read like it's been translated. That's not what I'm getting at at all. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that I'm reading the story in its pristine form in its all its art in with all its art intact. If I get that feeling, then I know it's a great translation. Okay. If so at that- any point something is coming between me and the story, then I know that there's something wrong. It, it can, It's how it, it jumps out at you. It jumps out at you. Yeah, you start, you, your attention is drawn to it. You are no longer immersed in the story. You're suddenly, you know, 
you're eating something and um, and there's a there's a bone where there should be no bone <laughs> right so you stop the your your you stop savoring the taste for a moment and the bone kind of uh, uh, occupies your sensations your nerve endings so it's something like that okay so i uh, you know are you you were talking about you know a collection of stories from other languages less you know with with few not like the not like malayalam or bengali or uh, you know marathi and kannada these are the languages with a lot of literature and which which are well known and you know so yes. um, are you thinking of well we are this is actually something that we are trying to um take up a project on from uh, the ashoka center for translation which uh, professor deeta kotari and i have started at ashoka university and mm-hmm. we are trying to put together some projects that will enable us to bring out uh, translated literatures from these other lesser used languages okay and what struck me also is the rajasthani story i mean rajasthan you know because uh, that's the only language which it's still not recognized right as a separate language whereas uh, you yes. know it's still, you know it's put under the thing of umbrella of hindi you know yeah. so what about you know languages like that i'm sure there are lots of other languages which are oh, also- yes. i mean there's bhojpuri there's maithili yes yes so but too and, and there are other variations of hindi as well Yes, um, and there are variations of. I mean, for example, in in the north of Bengal, there is mm-hmm. a version of Bangla that's spoken. That's that's some sort of a mixture of Bengali as we know it and Nepali and other things. You know, so local local spaces develop their own own um, versions of yes. the languages. So there is definitely. I mean, you know, the 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 spaces, the interstitial spaces, as it were, between the major languages, all mm. have language and literatures of their own, which would be wonderful to read. Uh, for the same reason, one because these are these are authentic literatures, and we they are also insights into geographies that we know very little about. Yes, yes. In, in fact, when I read Abhay K's collection of Bihari literature, this is what struck me. Like you say, you know, yes. Magadhi, uh, uh, Maithili, you know, Madhu. Yes. all these and very different exactly. languages and some of them had their own scripts as well you know which are now yes. subsumed by hindi so that's right you know i mean hindi as you know itself is an artificially yes. uh, constructed uh, combination language from all the local versions yes hmm. okay Okay, so great. I could keep talking to you about uh, all these things, you know, which are very interesting. I mean, you know, Urdu and Hindi and um, all these language, Bangla, everything that that's a lot of these stories are in your book. So, but there's no end to the conversation. So we'll have to uh, wrap it up now. But uh, for the listener, go out and get the greatest Indian stories ever told. You know, these are great, very good stories, a very good collection, and it's very enjoyable. And some of them you would might have you know read before, like Kabuliwala and all, which are part of our. Uh, we've encountered them in our school texts, and but it's still nice to read 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 these stories again. And some of them, of course, since India is such a huge country, you haven't read them before, and it's great to discover them. And I feel like this book. is like arunava said a gateway to more reading in each of these languages and i hope more translations come out which with all these stories and thank you so much for talking to me arunava thank you so much manjula for discussing this book and for giving me a chance to talk about it <laughs> okay bye bye 
To stay updated on this podcast, follow us at HD Smartcast on all the major social media platforms. To listen to more such podcasts, log on to www.hdsmartcast.com. Smartcast.com.